Sam Thompson is a British novelist whose novel Communion Town was long listed for the 2012 Man Booker Prize. His short fiction has appeared in anthologies and on Radio 4. He's also written for the Times Literary Supplement and the London Review of Books. He currently teaches creative writing at Queen's University, Belfast. Sam's debut novel for children, Wolf's Tongue, is recently published. And to launch our conversation, I invited him to explain the premise of the book. The premise of Wolf's Tongue is um, that uh, Silas is a boy who has trouble with his speech. He, he, has, he has trouble getting his words to come out and uh, things are, are difficult for him for, for various reasons because of that. He, he, and he he's gets bullied at school. Um, and one day on his way home from school, he meets a wolf uh, who can speak. And he and the wolf, they make a connection. And Silas, uh, through the wolf, Ice and Grimm, Silas discovers the existence of a kind of hidden world of animals who can speak. And he's drawn into a kind of conflict or a, a drama that, that, that the wolves and the foxes are playing out. The, the wolves have been made into slaves by the foxes in this place called the forest because the foxes are clever, articulate talkers. They can, they can persuade anyone to do what they want with their, with their clever language. They can always kind of come out on top. And especially their leader, Reynard the fox, is, is the cleverest talker of all. And so Silas is drawn into this uh, this drama between wolves and foxes. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot in this story, which is about language and finding a voice. And it's there really in the title of the book, Wolf's Tongue. So we know that yeah. uh, speaking and um, language are going to be really important. And uh, as we come on to talk about the book, I'm hoping we can explore some of the conflicts between the way in which language is perceived uh, in the book. But it'd be great if we could have a reading from the very beginning just to set us up. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll just read the the first couple of pages. There was a wolf on the cycle path. Silas walked along the path every day after school. It ran beside a patch of woodland. It was not the fastest way home, but Silas used it because he liked being by himself and the cycle path was always empty. Until today. The wolf stood in the middle of the path, watching him. Its head was as high as his chest. He had never been so close to such a large, wild animal. He did not know what to do. He had seen wolves in a wildlife park once. They had been pale, silent shapes slipping between the trees, too far away to seem dangerous or even quite real. But this wolf was real. He could hear it panting. He could see its wet red tongue and its long white teeth. At the sight, a chill crawled all the way from his shoulders to the base of his spine, and goose flesh tingled on his arms. His heart beat hard in his chest. He told himself he ought to back away carefully. He ought to run. But if I run, he thought, the wolf might chase me. Maybe I should flap my arms and shout so that it goes away. Wild animals are usually nervous of people, aren't they? But the wolf did not look nervous. It looked hungry. Its grey eyes were fixed on Silas, just waiting for him to start running. The narrow path was like a trap, with a brick wall on one side and a wire fence on the other. He held his breath. He kept very still. And then the wolf took a step forwards. So this is before the wolf actually speaks to him. And uh, it's great in that introduction because you get a sense of this really wild, unpredictable 
and Menacing Wolf. And it has to be said that, that the book is framed in our real space. You know, Silas goes to school, but most of the story takes place in what feels almost like a dream. It's, it's a forest. You could almost imagine that you can walk there, but it's not there. Yes. When I've been thinking about this book, as I start to talk to people about it, I, I've realised how how many of the books that I really loved as a child were books about, you know, I suppose, secondary worlds, you call them, you know, for, from uh, Alan Garner's books, uh, for example, uh, all the way up to things like um, China Mieville's and London and, and that they get lots and lots of others. And so and I think, you know, all of that was was feeding into this book. But my, my, my kind of, I, I suppose, my idea of my sort of twist on it was that I tried to think of it as not exactly a secondary world, but just a world that is actually present there. There's no portal. You feel that if you walk around the back of the shed, it might possibly might be there. And there's a female wolf in this story who actually says to Silas, the boy at one point, there is only one world. Yes, exactly. Um, Which was, yeah, that, that was the that was the kind of guiding thought to say, we'll have a secondary world, but we'll also insist there's only one world. Yeah. Kind of see what comes out of that. So the story draws on fable. You've made that connection very consciously because you've named your characters after the characters in the Reynard fables of the medieval period. Was that the starting point or how did that come to be part of the structure of the story? Yes, I think it was a st- It was one of the starting points. I had some kind of parts of the materials in mind already and then another thing came along and kind of sparked them into uh, an actual story. But the, the Reynard material, the, 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 the medieval folk cycles of um, the Reynard stories was material that I had been interested in for a long time, and then other things came along and just kind of crystallised them for me. Reynard is a is a trickster figure in in the old folk stories who is always up to mischief, always getting into trouble, and always able to get himself out of trouble and get someone else to take the blame. And and mm. he's one of these kind of embodiments of like human ingenuity and creativity. But but he has in the Reynard stories he has this nemesis who's Isengrim the wolf, who's like a big, strong, stupid wolf who who always uh, comes off worse in their in their encounters. So you've got a couple of other characters, well, three other characters, I think, that are there in the Reynard cycles as well. There's the bear, Bruno, yeah. and Tybalt, the cat, and the crow. They're minor characters in a way, but they, they do all serve quite an important role in the outcome of this story. I think I think that's right. I mean, I lifted all the names from the old stories, and and in in the in the old fables, the different animals they act like I guess a kind of model of human society. You know, each animal has its own kind of social role to play. But I mean, what what was kind of fun for me in writing this book was to just take those kind of raw materials and make it try and make I guess as I thought of it, you know, a kind of new myth out of them. Yeah. And and in my myth, Reynard is so cunning that he has gained ascendancy over everyone, all the other animals. And he's so human that he's done this in quite a human way. He's, he's built himself a city and he's built, he's, he's built a city in which the foxes can multiply and rule and do whatever they want to. And all the other animals find themselves kind of on the outside of this. And also at the same time, you know, the, the, the folklore gives you cues for who the animals might be that, you know, Tybalt is, is a kind of self-sufficient kind of debonair, uh, again, quite a moral kind of character. Uh, the crow lives in a kind of close symbiotic relationship with, with wolves, um, as they do in, in real life as well. Mm. You talked about writing your own mythology, but it's also 
a fable as well, isn't it? I mean, you talked about Reynard the Fox. He builds his own world. It's a stratified world in which the other animals are in slavery to him. And when those animals escape, then basically there becomes this whole hierarchy of foxes and he's top fox. So this is also a fable in that respect. And I suppose the other book that comes to mind that is similar but also quite different would be George Orwell's Animal Farm. Was that in your mind at all when you were writing this? It's one of those odd ones where I, I, as soon as you say it, I absolutely think you're right, but it wasn't in my mind, actually. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it's one of those cases where you have to put it out of your mind because otherwise you'll feel too oppressed by the comparison. You know, Mm -hmm. I love Animal Farm. I think had I thought of it, I would have, at least the way I, I was always taught to read Animal Farm was in quite a kind of hard allegorical way that you can obviously read the allegory of the Soviet Union in it. Um, and I, I'm not particularly interested in trying to write that kind of allegory. Mm. Um, I think what's much more exciting to me is trying to kind of set up an allegorical kind of scenario or kind of allegorical mechanism, which isn't completely under control, you know, and trying trying to set set something up where you don't quite understand how it works and then see how it plays out so i wouldn't know exactly what or who the foxes or the wolves are an allegory for but but they kind of have that allegorical potential in them i hope Mm. i I think that expresses it perfectly because it has not one meaning but many meanings i think that you could take from your fable if you like Uh, But there are some interesting points of similarity and differences. And one of them that struck me is that the solution at the end, the resolution, is brought about in part by from within. Now, you don't have that in Animal Farm. You're either pigs or humans and they come together at the end, whereas this is a little bit more nuanced in terms of those communities. That's such a good point. And you asked me that question makes me think of something about the writing process that I hadn't really thought about since since doing it but yeah I mean when you find yourself writing this kind of story you, of course you, you're, you're sort of aware you know the foxes they, they end up standing for a kind of privileged population of, of one kind or another and and the wolves for a, a group who are oppressed and the other other animals other things and and but but you of course become very cautious about making anything monolithic and and I, I absolutely did have that thought that it doesn't feel right to just say if you're a fox you're a bad guy you know some of the foxes are are very bad and unpleasant and some have consciences and want to help people out and you know that they you know I, I think that's that's the thing about you know you want you want to kind of give it a kind of allegorical layer but you also want to write characters mm-hmm. and let the characters. Mm. The individuals. Lots of people listening will be aware that you were long listed for the Booker Prize, so you're obviously known as a writer for adults. Yeah. Fables are stories that can be read by anybody. So the question I'm um, going to ask is whether you had a child reader in mind, or whether this was just the way, best way of telling the story that you wanted to tell, and that you didn't really have a reader in mind. The first answer is I did have a child reader in mind three child readers in mind who are my own children. They were at an age where I wanted to kind of write things for them. And, and this was one story that kind of came into to focus. But I think there's a kind of discipline that comes with that, that, you know, when you when you actually do have a, uh, a particular reader in mind, in a way it makes it easier to make certain judgments about the language and, you know, it, it, and it makes it harder in some ways that you, you have to find find the language that you know is going to work for that reader. But... I think the other thing that I 
felt like I found out while writing this book was that and you know, writing it after having written books for quote unquote grown ups was that there's an extra kind of mystery with writing for children, which is that you know when you're writing for grown ups you have to write for yourself you know you you have to act as the tuning fork, but I think there is a a really interesting way in which I found that I was also writing not for my present self but for my child self and telling yourself the story that you feel like you that that version of you needs to be told. I mean, and, you know, it's a story about about struggling to find language and about sort of feeling silent or silenced. And I think that that was my experience as a child. I'm sure, I think it probably is experience of, of many children in, in many different ways of you know that, that language is a, is a challenge and a struggle. And I mean, that was I think that's part of my experience of, of why why writing always appealed to me so much. We should say a little bit more about that because you're a writer. You're somebody that uses words. So clearly you value language and written expression. But within this book, language has both positive and negative connotation. It's associated a little bit with control, but also with knowledge. And so there are these competing sides of what language does. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm glad you think so. I mean, I just think that's true. You know, you know, writing this story, I just wanted to kind of go with the idea that language is what makes us what we are. Language is is kind of consciousness. Language is moral intelligence for for human beings, at least. That's why it also made sense, you know, for it to be a story about an- animals who can speak. It's a kind of it is a contradiction in terms. And I just thought it was really interesting to write a story which kind of tried to just live inside that contradiction. So another thing that comes through is that once you once you use language, once you name something that thing becomes fixed, your perception of it somehow becomes fixed. And there's an interesting idea where you're talking about the relationship between predator and prey, and uh, the wolf tells Silas that he's got this wrong. Yes. The idea is there that Silas finds the kind of the idea and the the sight of predator and prey of of wolves hunting deer, you know, a a sort of gruesome and, and disturbing idea. But the wolf tells him that because of the way that humans tell stories, that Silas thinks in terms of predator and prey, he thinks in terms of a winner and a loser. But just the wolf says that's that's not what it means to a wolf it's, or to a deer, that there's there's a different kind of story going on. Both the deer and the wolves know know what has to happen. I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm certainly not an animal behaviorist or a naturalist, <laughs> but but you know in the reading and and what what I've come to learn about wolves and their prey. That was an idea that I came across, and it does seem to me to be just an example of how, in human stories, you know, it's, it, there, there's some work to be done. If you look at the, the non-human world, there is always work to be done in kind of adapting human narrative to the non-human world, rather than adapting the non-human world to the narrative. Mm. Um, and that was kind of one of the ideas that I only kind of got to late in the writing, and I now want to write another book which which gets more into that. It's a really interesting idea because whenever we see an animal documentary, it's told a story in the same way as if you were telling a human story. I mean, so this is just a very different way of looking at it. Um, I wanted to talk also about some of the deeper experiences that Silas has. and, and, And he goes just about as deep as you can, both physically into the earth, but also into his kind of questioning He's put into positions where he starts to think differently. 
about the world. And one of them is when he goes into the cave to find some healing clay. One of the wolves has become injured, been bitten by a fox. And he's the only one that can really go into this place to uh, retrieve the healing clay. I thought it'd be really lovely to hear a piece of that. Yeah, so there's this clay which has kind of magic properties and Silas has to go down to, to retrieve some of it. So he goes into this this old cave system. His heart lurched and the light of the torch bounced madly around the chamber. At the edge of his vision, something had moved. He held his breath, his blood beating in his ears, waiting for some pale and faceless monster of the cave to spring at him from the dark. He waited. There was only silence and echoing water. He swung the torch back to the place where he had seen the movement. On a bulging rock wall, the light revealed a drawing, a picture of a deer. The lines had been carved into the rock and coloured with dark pigments. The deer was running. The drawing had a fluency which made it seem to move as the light slid across. The animal's eye was no more than a dark dot, but it was looking at him. The torchlight slipped along the wall, and more animals came alive. Horses, elk, reindeer, bison, cows and bulls, even rhinoceros and elephants. Lions, bears and wolves. All of them running, leaping, striding or rearing, and all fixing him with their black spot eyes. The animals ran across the walls of the chamber into the darkness. As he stared at them, an urge came over him, and after a minute he obeyed it. He turned off his torch. At the instant he did so, it was as if there had never been any light. Not down here, not anywhere in the universe. He could not tell if he was standing or falling, awake or asleep. He was barely here at all. All there was of him in this dark was a voice saying to itself, What if I drop the torch now? What if I throw it away and hear it smash on the rocks? He clicked the switch and the light came back. For the rest of his life, he would wonder why he had turned it off. I think what works so well um, about that passage and the experience in the cave is that it does work as a good adventure story. You know, a child is going to uh, feel the thrill of what happens in that cave. It's very claustrophobic at points. And, you know, you can feel yourself taking this intake of breath yeah, I agree. It's yes, it's the claustrophobia. But at the same time, there's more to it there. If you, you know, that that kind of wondering, who am I? Where did I come from? All those big questions, and that that moment where he switches the torch off, but doesn't know why he's done that. That's almost like the person wanting to take the leap off the bridge, isn't it? That kind of compulsion to do that thing. Yes, and I think those are just moments that you write your way. Too, if if you're lucky. I mean, I I think that that was one of those moments where the story slightly surprised me. I didn't I didn't know he was going to do that uh, until I was writing that passage. I think that's a really interesting insight about writing. You know, you can plan things, but it's only at the point of writing sometimes that you know where it's you genuinely know where it's going to take you, and somehow you can't plan for those moments. Every writer has their own, I think, ideas about this. I mean, I, I do, I do plan quite a lot actually, and and of course, you know, some some writers uh, don't plan at all, just write their way forward, always into the darkness. 
but I think in, I always it always seems to me you know that the, the purpose of planning things out and building you know building yourself kind of scaffolding is to, to help you get to the unexpected parts and the places where it ceases to be a kind of day brain process and where the story or the language starts to you know it sounds always sounds a little bit nonsensical to say it kind of takes over or comes alive or however you want to put it but I don't it's I, I think it's actually an entirely hard headed kind of thing that we can seek actually you know it's it's about being there for the language and kind of cultivating the language enough that it starts to kind of reveal its own hidden structures or hidden kind of energies and and if you're kind of present enough and faithful enough to it then then it does start to do that with any luck so there is a resolution uh, to this adventure which i won't reveal uh, what happens at the end uh, but i wanted to take us to some of the ideas that you express at the end because typically what would happen in a story like this is that Silas the boy who's had no voice would go through this experience he'd be transformed by his experience and he'd be able to go back to school and he would have been equipped now with the tools to help him cope in that environment Without saying too much about it, that's not the place that you take this story to. And it was a quote that I took out of the book, um, which I thought was really interesting. Pain and trouble brings understanding, which ease does not. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it's true that the book kind of it, it is aware of the way of, of that kind of pattern of how we might want the story to end up. And it it doesn't quite end up on that spot does it and it, I, at the same time I, I suppose i was always thinking about you know to finding a resolution in the kind of spirit world in in the kind of shamanic world that silas goes to and it might be one and the same thing as finding a resolution in the in the in the ordinary the mundane everyday life world and i i don't i guess i don't know the answer to that you know I've, i think they're not the same thing but but of course they're not entirely separate either so i just kind of wanted to leave with that that question actually that there's you know there, there's an end to the adventure in the in the spirit world of the animals and we then have to work out what that means for what we can do in our everyday life again i mean the the, the line about pain and trouble bringing understanding i mean in silas's case it's again it's a, it's about language and words i suppose that he you know he words to him are a source of of pain and trouble more than to to some people and that seems to me to be the case that if you are the sort to whom words are are difficult and maybe we all are you know I'm, i i wouldn't want to kind of exclude anyone from that category necessarily but but you know it's it's the pain and trouble that you have with words that that leads you to kind of work out what what words really are and what kind of danger and power they they have to hurt you and therefore to hurt other people and beyond that to hurt those who are not people uh, mm. to, to non non-human creatures and that the world beyond ourselves and that's that's a kind of thing which just again I, I i want to argue for the kind of that's a place you know we might we might say that and it sort of sounds figuratively like it might be true that that language make shapes the world but but it's but it's literally true you know it's it's language that has made humans into the the most uh, you know destructive and dangerous creatures that have have ever existed and so, so in, in a way that's kind of encountering the pain and trouble of language in our in our own experience you know it's the kind of it's the it's the beginning of a great responsibility mm. there are two episodes if you like within this story that show silas coming out of his own uh, world and seeing beyond it apart from the forest that kind of magical dreamlike space 
uh, within his own world, um, he at one point notices the stars. And by looking a little closer, he sees the stars that are further away, almost as though his gaze takes him further and further into space and considers the vastness of that. And then towards the end of the uh, story, we see the kind of opposite of that, where he's looking inwards through a tiny brick wall. Um, he's bullied at school and his bullies are pursuing him and he expresses his feelings by hitting a brick wall and then he notices things within it. And I wondered if you could read that part because I thought that was a really interesting counterpoint to that earlier episode. Yeah, there's a sort of I, I, a little mantra, I suppose, that recurs about about looking closer at things and yeah and this is one of those points where he he does that he just... his eyes prickled he walked along the cycle path squeezing his hand into a fist in the pocket of his jacket then he tore the fist out of the pocket and punched the wall he yelped at the pain and stopped walking to examine the blood oozing from his knuckles he touched the wall feeling the bite of the brick he had never looked closely at this wall before but now, with his knuckles stinging, he looked. He saw that each brick was a tiny landscape of ridges, peaks, rifts, pits and plains. No two were alike. The bricks and the gaps between them were home to many different kinds of life. Clumps of moss, streaks of algae and blotches of lichen. And grass, nettles and small wildflowers growing in the cracks. Silas saw a caterpillar there too, and an ant. A whole column of ants climbing. The wall was not just a wall, he realised. It was a tiny world in itself, and the closer you looked at it, the more you discovered. It was like looking into the night sky and finding stars in the darkness. Perhaps everything was like that, he thought. You will never reach the end, because the more you look, the more you find. On and on, forever. That's a really good thought for us to end on, because that really surely is about the journey of life to always be moving on and on. We will never get to the end of it, even when we get to the end of it. <laughs> uh, I so enjoyed your story, Wolf's Tongue, Sam. Thank you very much for joining me in the Reading Corner today to tell us more about it. No, thank you very much. It was, it was really good to speak to you about it. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.